slide you? It's on, huh? All right, sound is on. So welcome, uh, everybody, to the uh, sixth, last, and certainly not least, uh, of our debates with the uh, Spitzenkandidaten, organized by uh, Bruegel and the uh, NDFT. Uh, you are now all familiar with the, uh, the system that we uh, use, the format. Uh, we make a short introduction of the, uh, of the candidate, and then we will divide the discussion in, uh, in five parts. Uh, we will have four substantive parts uh, on different uh, topics, uh, the general uh, economic uh, program of the, uh, of the candidate, then issues specific about, uh, about trade, about uh, the euro and the regional issues, and uh, then about uh, competition policy and industrial policy. Uh, during this time, uh, you will have an opportunity, uh, you, the, uh, the audience here, to, uh, to raise questions using our, our system, uh, Slido, and we will relay some of those questions to, to the candidate. And then at the end, uh, hopefully we will have uh, 15, 20 minutes to have uh, a general discussion, leaving you the opportunity to, uh, to, raise, uh, to raise questions. So uh, each of the parts will be about 15, uh, 15 minutes, and uh, we will alternate, uh, Marine and myself, uh, asking, the, uh, asking the questions. Uh, you, uh, sir, you are a very well-known person here in Brussels. You have been a member of parliament in the Netherlands. You were foreign minister, and now, uh, currently, you are the first vice president of the commission and standing for the Socialist Party as the candidate for future president of the, uh, of the commission. We are very happy to, uh, to welcome you here, and uh, we look forward to the discussion. Let me hand it to, uh, to Merin. Um, hello everyone, my name is Mehreen Khan. I'm one of five Brussels correspondents um, based here for the Financial Times. Um, I'm going to encourage everyone to use Slido to ask questions, but also if you look through the app, you'll be able to pick which questions you think I should definitely ask. So they will jump to the top of the screen. So if there's something burning, then we're going to try and get them in at the end of every section as well. And at the end, we can hand over the mic. Um, I'm going to kick us off. So I think we're going to get into lots of the specifics a bit later on. But to kick us off, as the centre-left candidate um, and from a political family which has suffered um, across Europe, mainly because for what has been seen as its inability to offer economic alternatives, what's your sort of pitch for, one, maybe reviving a centre-left economic tradition and how can the centre-left help revive a continent which we're already seeing slightly starting to sort of fall into a downturn already? So it would be a very pertinent issue for the next commission as soon as you get into office. Well, if you look into the history of the, of the left or the centre-left, you see that from the very beginnings, 150 years ago, it's all about redistribution. How within a society do you redistribute what society produces as a total in a fair way? And um, the second element is we always perceive society as not being fair enough, uh, so you need to correct that. Um, and this has become more pertinent um, now that we are in the fourth industrial revolution, where the redistribution is moving in an incredible speed. Uh, we're, move, we're also coming out of a number of crises, and with very few exceptions, in all member states of the European Union, these crises have led to bigger discrepancies between rich and poor, and not smaller, uh, and this needs to be corrected. We also see that, and, and an IMF report came out, I think yesterday, confirming this, 
that the new economy in this fourth industrial revolution produces economic actors that are so big and so powerful that they can subtract themselves from public control. Uh, actually, this happened in every industrial revolution, so there again, public authorities will have to intervene. And then it's clear that you can no longer intervene with the same instruments as in previous industrial revolutions because of the size of these companies. So you need instruments at a higher level than a national level, and that's where Europe would uh, kick in. I also think that um, uh, what has dominated public debate, especially in the middle classes, is their pessimism uh, about the future. And this has affected the centre-left more than other uh, political movements because the centre-left come, always comes with a promise of improvement. Uh, whereas the Conservatives always come with a promise of we'll manage things, uh, which is a fundamental difference in the expectation uh, of people. So uh, we have a huge task. We have to prove that a different form of politics is possible. We have to prove that also in the fourth industrial revolution, redistribution remains an instrument in the hands of people, uh, of the majority of people. Uh, but to regain the trust, we will need uh, a better narrative and also concrete steps forward in fiscal policy, in social policy, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the workplace, uh, so that people regain a sense that there is a place for them, a, a, a good place for them in the society that comes. One of the um, maybe sources of the pessimism, or at least the insecurity, is uh, is perceived to be migration, and that's a topic in which some uh, parties in Europe on the left have decided to rethink their approaches to how they think about migration. What is your migration policy? Is this a problem to be managed, or is this um, one of the ways in which you can try and reverse the pessimism of the continent by saying migration can be the opposite? It could be a source of bringing people into Europe who are the most optimistic about its prospects. Well, I, th I think the, the problem here is that um, the challenge of migration, uh, now let me start in a different way. The problem is not migration. The problem is that in the crisis of 2015 and 2016, the perception was that this was no longer in control. And if something is seen by people as out of control, they want, they want something to change very rapidly. And um, we got it back under control. We still need to do quite a lot to make it sustainable, but we got it back under control. But the political after effects of not having it under control in 2015 and 2016 will last for many, many more years. And this feeds into feelings of nationalism, identity politics. So this all becomes mixed up, migration with identity, with integration, etc. And we need to disentangle this. And you can only disentangle this with a sustainable migration policy. And I'm not one of those on the left who say everybody's welcome. I think the only way we can have a sustainable migration policy if we're in control of migration policy. The only way we can always offer a refuge to refugees is if we're in control of migration. And control of migration means not just better uh, external border protection, not just agreements with third countries of origin of, and of transit. It also means that in, cases, in case of crises, we are able to share the burden at the European level. And that, that is the, the, the one remaining issue uh, that um, uh, member states don't see eye to eye uh, in. And if we don't solve this issue as well, we will not have sustainable migration policy. And part of that policy, if, if we're in control of this, I'm absolutely convinced the European population will accept that we also have a forward-looking migration policy that will allow for legal migration to the European Union. But as long as people have the feeling you're not in control, they will say, keep everybody out. 
And that is bad for our economy. That's bad for our society. But it's more, uh, it's more even, it's, it's bad for our values because it, it pits people against each other on the basis of their origins or their religion or, or, or the color of their skin. And this is something in Europe that we should sort of get rid of because it's, it's, it's paralyzing us. It is under control, migration, if you if you look at the numbers. And, and the burden sharing is no longer as pertinent as it was back in 2015. And you were in the commission, which had to make that kind of decision to yes. force this sort of through. So we still seem to be stuck in a narrative that's three years old in an election campaign where it's become still a sort of rallying cry for so many parties. So, so but but my, my, my point is, is that this is being instrumentalized by certain political parties. And they can do it precisely because it is under control. Because the interesting thing is, when it was out of control, it was not that difficult to get all the member states and all the political forces together to find solutions. For instance, on the Turkey statement and other solutions. It's when the crisis, the real crisis is over, that politicians feel free to instrumentalize the subject. But the reality is that in large parts of the population, this is something people worry about. And we have to take that seriously. And a left that just says, let everybody come to Europe, is irresponsible because that's the best way to pave the way for extreme right uh, parties to become bigger and bigger in Europe. We need to show that we can manage this and if we show we can manage it, then Europeans who are great humanitarians will still have um, uh, uh, an open mind about, about receiving refugees, real refugees, and will still have an open mind for a migration policy that also uh, accepts uh, the idea of legal migration but it needs to be regulated and controlled. That's the fundamental point. Let me, let me take you back to, uh, to the discussion about distribution. You put a, a lot of emphasis as a, as a left of center candidate uh, naturally to uh, issues of redistribution. Um, but what about the size of the cake? Before talking about the distribution of the cake, the size of the cake itself. Um, do you think that uh, Europe has, uh, has a growth uh, problem? Uh, and if it does, uh, what do you think uh, Europe, uh, the Timmermans Commission, uh, what would be its orientation in terms of growth? You talked about uh, the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, Europe is typically lagging behind on this. Uh, you know, we see. Uh, American firms, Chinese firms uh, having a very important stake there, and uh, okay, you you know you indicated that you know in this fourth industrial revolution the distribution is something that you want to look after. But say, what about the size of the cake? Mm -hmm. uh, what would be your uh, options for the growth strategy? What would be the Timmermans uh, well, growth first approach? First of all, I'm not that pessimistic about Europe, um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, given our demographic. Uh, uh, development. Having an average annual growth of about 1% is not that bad. Um, but it means you can't have the policies of the past. So as someone from the left, I then also have to say that having huge public debt with an average annual growth of 1% is a huge problem for the future. You're putting so much weight in the shoulders of your children and grandchildren. Think about that. Um, um, secondly, um, I think there is huge potential in the circular economy. There is huge potential for investment in all sorts of policies that will create an increase in labour productivity. Um, there is huge potential because we are, as a continent, 
very close to each other. We have relatively high purchasing power. We have relatively high adaptivity of our systems if, if compared to other parts of the world. I don't think there's another part of the world where the introduction of 5G, for instance, would lead as quickly to a fundamental rethinking of our logistics lines, of, of the way our economy functions, of transport in inner cities and all of that. Uh, I think this could be done relatively fast. But we also need economies of scale of that. We need European champions for that. I, mean, I think at the end we will come and talk about the industrial policies. Yes. But these are things we will need in, in the future. Um, if we do these things, I think, relatively speaking, the European population is more adaptable than other populations. What about, this, what about the single market in this Well, the single market is, is, long, long, uh, is a long way from being perfect. There's still a, a many things we, we can do to improve uh, the single market. Um, and there's also willingness across the European Union to do that. And this will certainly be uh, part of the program of the Timmermans uh, uh, Commission. But on top of that, I think we need um, to reinvent our industrial policy. Um, we need to make sure that all the efforts and investment are being put in what I would call um, the 17 SDGs as something that will give guidance to where we need to be by 2030. I, as President of the Commission, would take personal responsibility for, for the SDGs. And within, and there's so, so much buy-in from the from the private sector, from NGOs, from 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 political parties into this thinking. I think it would be a huge missed opportunity if the next commission did not make, make that sort of the the framework within which it wants to work. Would there be a Timmermans plan like a, a Juncker plan I for think, investment? You know, if, if something works well, you don't have to just because to give it a different name. You don't have to reinvent it. I think we need to expand. FC, the Juncker plan. It's working extremely well. And it's reaching more than ever before, especially small and medium-sized enterprises. And much of the extra um, uh, jobs that came to Europe is linked to the fact that investment has been made much easier for small and medium-sized enterprises. I hope we can increase FC, and I will hope we can also redirect FC and the structural funds to focus very much on creating more sustainability. Uh, if, you, if I may, I give you one concrete yes. example. Wherever I go in Europe, when people raise issues with me, always, everywhere, housing is an issue. Young people everywhere in Europe say, we can't stay in our cities or we need to stay with our parents because we can't afford to live in our own cities. Um, second is, because of our demographic development, many elderly people are saying to me, we'd love to stay and live in our houses longer and not depend on others. But with the stairs and other things, it doesn't work. Could we not change that? And third thing is, the energy issue, we need to make housing more sustainable. So these three challenges come together. So why not make FC easier available if city governments, uh, regional governments, make plans to reconstruct or to construct? And why not, through the structural funds, say to cities and local governments, if you allocate, let's say, 30% of new housing for socially affordable housing, you will get support from the structural funds directly. So you can do these three strands in one with European support. I think this is something people you know, would really welcome. In, in your first pitch, you mentioned large multinational companies which seem to escape uh, the aegis of any sort of uh, government authority. How are you planning to hold their feet to the fire if you're in the commission? Well, first of all, it's, it starts with taxation. Um, you know, Tax competition was, was, was a, a relatively good idea in the beginning when member states were still more powerful than individual corporations. Now you have corporations 
they're actually richer than individual member states and could just blackmail them into allowing them to um, uh, stay without paying taxes. Um, and I think uh, what we need, and, and uh, I think it, we need member states to recognize that they are no longer individually capable to apply fair taxation to these biggest corporations. So that means you need to do it at the European scale. And I would say you know, the Commission has launched some ideas of, of um, uh, a majority, a qualified majority voting in that area. I would say let's just start with one thing that we should all be doing. Let's just agree on a minimum, a minimum uh, corporate tax in Europe. Let's say, for instance, 18% as a minimum. And then member states can decide whether they want to do a bit more or a bit less. Let's have a discussion about that. Then we are sure that the big corporations can't just establish But you want themselves. to put the floor? Yeah, I think, I think, I think what in French they call an assiette uh, is something we need to do here. And I think we need to do it urgently um, because this is also one of those subjects. Wherever you go, left and right, if you say to people, is this fair? People say, no, this isn't fair. And this, the, the fact that big corporations don't pay fair taxes is something that that feeds the feeling of, especially the middle classes, we're not being treated fairly. And just read the recent OECD report about the middle classes. It will confirm all these feelings. And these feelings aren't just feelings, they're reality. So we need to fix that, and we need to fix that urgently. And it starts with, uh, with fiscal issues. And then, you know, like the discussion in the United States is even about downsizing uh, uh, corporations and, and companies. We will have to face that in the framework of our industrial policy, we will have to think if they are too big to be controlled, then perhaps they should be smaller. That's also something that needs to be envisaged. But I would start with fiscal policy. That would already make a huge difference, in my view. Marine, maybe you want to pick one of the uh, questions from, the, the, from the audience, because, and then yeah. we left to move there to the There is a clamour for one subject we brought up, and that's Brexit, so I'm going to do it. Yeah, I know, it's strange. We have a question from Stefan, who asks, should the UK, uh, including Labour, um, take part in, uh, Labour MEPs take part in the vote for the next Commission President? This is coming off of the back of the fact that Britain will most likely stay in the EU for at least another six months. Well, frankly, having followed the discussion, uh, over the last week on this, I have a very clear opinion about this. A member state is a member state until they're no longer a member state. So we don't have two classes of member states. If we introduce that concept, then the EU is lost. Um, so the United Kingdom is a member state until the day they leave, if they leave. Um, and, and so MEPs have full rights like anybody else until the day they leave, if they leave. So uh, let's not, um, the, the only obligation on member states is the obligation of loyal cooperation. Uh, that was made explicit uh, last night, um, but I don't want to sound, uh, well, I, I try and sound ironic and not cynical, but uh, loyal cooperation and the questions about loyal cooperation is not just a question vis-a-vis -vis the UK. There are other member states where you can sometimes wonder whether what they're doing is a, a proof of loyal cooperation. We'll have to come back to that one. <laughs> I think we should move to the, uh, to the second topic. We have a, a slide uh, to show about uh, trade and the, uh, the importance of trade. That's the chart indeed. Uh, where we see that as far as goods trade is concerned, uh, the EU uh, external trade, extra EU trade, is uh, roughly of the same level of, of, as China. Actually, if you include 
goods and services mm -hmm. in the picture. Uh, the EU is the largest exporter of goods and services, and actually the largest importer of goods and services. But obviously, as we know, intra-EU trade uh, is even bigger uh, for us than uh, extra-EU trade. So trade is, is a very important uh, matter uh, for Europe. Uh, we have seen for the last uh, couple of years uh, lots of uh, disputes with the, with the US. There is the, the, the rise of China. So we live in a much more difficult world. Uh, the WTO is clearly uh, under threat. Uh, Europe uh, has uh, signed a number of uh, bilateral uh, deals with Canada, with uh, Japan uh, recently. Uh, there is no... Uh, discussions about and the Commission is seeking a mandate from the Council to have a negotiation with the, with the United States. I want to hear your view. Uh, your, your party, the Socialist Party, we see that in, in Parliament, uh, has been hesitant on uh, the trade deals. I think you are a strong, uh, strongly in favour uh, of trade deals, but you know, how would be your position in, uh, in the Commission, I think you have certainly followed the, uh, the line. Uh, one, we need can, trade deals. one cannot deny one's national origins. Can no, we? that's right. But the party is yep. matters as well. And we saw that recently about the US trade deal. Yep. Uh, the socialist group, uh, including the, the chair of INTA, was opposed to the launch. So what would the uh, Timmermans Commission do precisely about the EU-US trade negotiations? Well, uh, let, me, let me start with one remark for all the young people in, in this room. Um, from the very beginning, the European economic community was a trade-off between a country that desperately needed to bring life back to its rural areas and another country that desperately needed world markets. So um, Germany accepted the common agriculture policy and France accepted trade policy. That was the initial deal. But France never liked trade policy and that's never going to change. And, uh, but on top of that, that's the origin, but on top of that, trade deals have always been sort of the business of a completely initiated small elite. And in a, in a paternalistic Europe, this worked well. It's too complicated, we'll take care of it. No worries, you'll just get more trade. Um, but we are now in a post-paternalistic world. And then the public wanted to know. And public public was, was wary of this for a number of reasons. Uh, because they thought trade would undermine their jobs. Trade would undermine our uh, standards in, in, in uh, foodstuffs and natural protection and social uh, protection. And trade, um, if there is a conflict, uh, would be, that would be dealt with uh, by a small elite of initiated people who are not really judges. Um, so once this was brought to the table and people were made aware of the complexity and p uh, potential dangers of trade deals, then this all exploded and, and, and of course the uh, North American Free Trade uh, Agreement, the uh, 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 discussion at the time about the American Trade uh, Agreement led to this huge public outcry. And I, I, I remember so much that people who had been working on this for 20, 30 years, in the Commission and without, were saying, whoa, what's happening? Whoa, what, what, why are people... And then instead of understanding that this would need a long-term, deep public engagement, they, you know, they just kept this paternalistic attitude, you stupid people didn't understand, we'll explain it once again. And this led to even more 
distrust of these that, treaties. That, and that, that is, is what, the past. That is, but no, what but is that's, the... that, sadly, I wish it were the past. We're still very much there. And then even a, a, a trade agreement with Canada mm -hmm. that has, in my view, accommodated those fears and that is already showing that is more profitable for the EU uh, than Canada. Don't tell the Canadians. It's, we're among us here. It's more profitable for the, Even that is being challenged because it's trade deal. But what about the EU-US, the specific, yes. uh, which now it's not quite clear whether the, the Council will give a, a mandate. Would a Timmermans Commission, uh, if it doesn't go through during the, the Juncker Commission, is the Timmermans Commission going to seek a mandate from the Council and discuss with Parliament, which doesn't yes. have to participate in the yes, formal in the mandate. I, I, will the Timmermans Commission wants to initiate discussion I, with the Trump administration I'll, I'll on tell trade? You why. I'll tell you why. I think any commission is under a political, economic, and I would even say moral obligation to do whatever it can to make the risk of Trump slapping tariffs on European uh, products as small as possible. And he is just waiting for an opportunity to do that. Again, he attacked the EU last night uh, because of the Brexit discussion. He's looking for an excuse. And I don't want to give him the excuse we can't agree on a mandate to then slap these tariffs on. And, and then we're talking about real jobs of real people that are going to be lost. So this, is my, this would be my pitch also to the European Parliament. Don't give this guy an argument to slap tariffs on European products because that will cost us dearly. So give me a mandate to at least talk to them and see if we can avert this. Uh, out of a position of strength, not accepting his premise that we should also talk about agriculture, etc. No way. But just give us the opportunity because why is Trump looking, why is Trump, why does he hate the EU so much? Not that he's given it much thought. I don't think he does that in general. But I think he, he, I think he does that because he thinks he can negotiate better trade deals with individual member states than with the EU. And if that is the case, I think it is, then it should be the strongest arguments to all member states, give the EU the opportunity to negotiate on your behalf because then we are so much stronger. This is the first American president who defines every relationship as a transactional relationship. So in that reality, we should also be transactional on trade, and we can only be transactional on trade if we act united as Europeans. Otherwise, the individual member states will be too weak, and then he will get what he wants. Is there room for the WTO in this world of transaction, or has everything gone bilateral and power relation? Uh, is Geneva out of the picture, or would the Timmermans administration uh, want to continue the uh, European line that, you know, multilateralism is still uh, not only in terms of values but in terms of interest, uh, one of the pillars of EU trade policy? Look, we're only 7% of the world's population, we Europeans, and we're a decreasing percentage of the world's economy. The only thing that can protect the weaker against the stronger is rules. So if you, if you take away the rules and you go purely back to power politics, Europe loses. But if you can maintain the rules, um, which I think profit most parts of the world, and you can organize it in such a way that we also show to the Americans, stay within the rules, I think that is defending European interests best. And you saw how difficult the negotiations with the Chinese were, because for the first time, Europe stood up more strongly for, for its, and not just thinking about trade, but also for long term. But we did reach an agreement. 
uh, with the Chinese, uh, and we do see that the Chinese would also like to maintain WTO rules. So, so I mean, if if we reduce the world entirely to just transactional uh, relations, then Europe is no, nothing more than a backwater. If we maintain the multilateral system and stay on our values, then Europe stays this continent which is attractive to many, many other parts of the world in terms of how we live, in terms of our internal relations, in terms of our values. And this is so important because it has a huge effect on our economy. Do you want to democratize trade policy or not? Because the suggestion just now is actually when you deal with someone like Trump, it's better to get there fast, quick, get a mandate, rather than go through some of the more... Yeah, um, I, I want to democratize it by giving the European Parliament a say in whether we get a mandate or not. That's, that's democracy, in my view. And if and the I, European Parliament is the reason why that mandate can't come quick enough, are you happy to skip those steps? No, I, I, I really need... I, if, because we are in a what I would call a post-paternalistic world, it would be self-defeating to go there without having a mandate of the European Parliament. So I would really work on this, and I think I can get a mandate of the European Parliament if we define very precisely what we're going to negotiate on, if we define very precisely what our red lines are, and then we go and talk to, to the Americans. But I think preventing us from having a mandate and then not talking to the Americans for Europe is a dangerous, is a dangerous way of acting, because then it would give Trump the, the, the perfect excuse also internally, because he's got resistance in the US as well to slap tariffs on European cars, etc. Because he's just aching to slap tariffs. Um, and we need to have this implicit alliance between the Europeans and people in Congress in the United States who do understand the importance of having agreements on trade. CETA was probably the last of its kind in a sense. We have this sort of yeah. almost uh, landmark judgment from the ECJ, which means that we're probably going to do less of these sort of mixed agreements which require a more bureaucratic way of approving them. So actually the, the direction is towards a less overtly democratic way to do trade deals. So as a commissioner, how would you convince people who are very sceptical all over Europe about the benefits of trade that they well, still why, have a why, say? Sorry, I didn't, I didn't well, follow I mean, your reasoning. Why is it less... Democratic. Well, as in, uh, so we have a situation where the balloons can hold up SETA. If we don't go for these sort of mixed agreements anymore, we ha we don't have to go through the, the more cumbersome uh, process of ratification. And for some and voters, that might see, some voters will see that they have less of an influence of it, or national governments or national parliaments will. Hang on, uh, and and it is democratic if a very if if one part of one member state can stop the whole thing. That's that's more democratic. They will feel. I mean, they will feel that voters will have an influence on it, at least in that part. Of Valonia, at least. But, can but you wouldn't want the Belgian parliament, for instance, or the European parliament to take that responsibility. Um, I, I, I grant you that there are different ways of doing this. They're different, but they're not necessarily less democratic. Um, and we will uh, have to look at mixed agreements, not mixed agreements, but this is something I think we will need to discuss uh, with um, the member states. What I would like to avoid in the next commission, a couple of things. One is to have every time a discussion uh, with the member states about whose whose competence this is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's you know for the for the wider public out there, they really don't care who's competent. They just want us to perform, and they really don't distinguish between Commission, European Parliament, or Council. That's just Europe, and Europe is not delivering. You know, so so I think I I I would be sort of more pragmatic in my relationship with the council, you know, anything that works and that doesn't destroy the system, I would gladly uh, embrace. Um, secondly, as commission in our attitude, you know, since, since we've been 
since we're under attack all the time, let's be, let's be frank about this, uh, we sometimes behave like, you know, children who feel that they're not loved by their parents, so we try and overcompensate to prove how good we are. Uh, and so when every document starts with, had the council done what the commission had suggested, we would not be in this mess. I think, let's leave all of that out. Again, you know, the commission just does its job to the best of its ability, and let's keep in mind that we will be judged by the results, not by who did what. I think it's it's just a waste of energy to, to, to be in a tug of war with the other institutions. And I think you know the, the, the ones who created the treaty wanted a political union where there are three political bodies, the council, the parliament, and the commission, and we should all play our roles within that relationship. And I think then we can show to the public that Europe can actually deliver. Is trade a problem for the left? I think um, uh, trade is a challenge for all of us because um, the extreme right uh, is even more radically opposed uh, to trade. Um, um, uh, there are doubts in the population because of this history of, of paternalistic trade relations. So I think it's a challenge to all of us, but I would, I would concur with you, it is really a challenge uh, for, for the left uh, as long as we cannot prove that trade does not happen at the expense of our values, of our social protection and environmental protection. I think I take this very, very seriously. And I, you see the way we are now talking about trade is completely different uh, from five or six years ago. Can I just follow the question of trade a problem for the left mm -hmm. uh, with the trade a problem for the Greens? Um, presumably, uh, if uh, you are to become the, uh, the president of the... Uh, of the next commission, uh, there will need to be some alliance someplace uh, between the socialists and the Greens. Mm -hmm. uh, we have seen that in the European Parliament, the Greens have been uh, very much opposed to, to trade agreements. And uh, on top of that, uh, there have been a number of pronouncements, certainly from, from France and from President Macron, that uh, we, Europe, uh, we are not ready to do trade deals with countries that uh, are not part of the Paris uh, Agreement. Um, would that be uh, your line also? So it's a double question. How do you deal with the Greens that have been you know, rather skeptical of, of trade deals in general? And then on top of that, the, uh, the climate issue. Uh, mm -hmm. Are you ready to, uh, if not enter into negotiation, to sign a trade deal with a country that would not be a signatory of the Paris Agreement? Well, first of all, on the Greens, um, hey, they're very close to my political movement. They're very close to me. Of course, we have differences, but these differences between us and the Greens, you know, are, are almost non-existent if you compare it to the differences with other political movements. So I'm not going to pick a fight with the Greens at all. Um, I'm sometimes a bit surprised that they sometimes seem to feel more comfortable in conservative waters than in social democratic waters, but let's see. Uh, I think we have more to offer uh, to them. And I certainly will learn from some of their environmental policies and sustainable, uh, sustainability policies, which I, which I deem very, very wise and important. Now, on trade, um, uh, again, the Greens have positions. I think they're not that far removed from, from the positions of the Social uh, uh, Democrats. Um, but one thing I have to add, where I think we have a stronger position than the Greens, and perhaps the Greens can work with us on this, is social sustainability. Because if there's one thing I've learned from the Yellow Vest and, other, and also in my own country, the protests against the 
measures necessary to have a more sustainable society, is if people in the middle classes have the feeling the burden is on us uh, and only on us, um, the industry gets off the hook, um, no way, then no sustainability. I mean, if, if we do not start with a credible social sustainability policy, we will not get economic sustainability and we will not get ecological sustainability. So that's perhaps something the Greens can learn a bit from us and we can work with them together on that. Now, as far as the uh, not signing agreements with um, uh, countries that don't ratify uh, the Paris uh, Agreement, I think that's a bit much of a blanket declaration. Uh, I think we would need to look uh, country by country. But if as a Commission President I feel responsible for the SDGs and take that responsibility personally, then I should also feel highly responsible for the implementation of the Paris Agreement. And then it would make it extremely difficult to indeed have a comprehensive trade agreement, perhaps partial agreements would, would be possible, but to have a comprehensive trade agreement with a country that does not subscribe to the Paris uh, goals. I think we're going to move on. We've exhausted trade. Um, and we're going to bring up another chart which will show the relative performance and underperformance of uh, the entire um, European economy. Got it? If we, if we can have the next chart, please. Uh, and this is to introduce our, our next uh, topic, which is sort of the Eurozone, but also the, the, this problem of convergence or lack of convergence. So the red spots mark the, the worst or most underperforming parts of, of Europe, uh, and the green otherwise. So we can see in the, in the newer eastern member states, they've benefited from lots of catch-up growth, but then you have real sort of pockets, hotspots of trouble uh, in Andalusia. Uh, in the UK, you can see Wales, which uh, was a predominantly Brexit voting region in, in the UK. We also have Northern Ireland, um, Southern, Southern Europe, Greece, Southern Italy, and then sort of the, uh, the, the huge sort of uh, block of France, which could probably explain some of the um, more sort of political eruptions that we're seeing in France. So, I mean, looking at that, as a European Commission president, you will be faced with this map. And what do you do about it? Which, which year is this? That is a very good question. This it's is 2003 it's, to 2017. 2017. Per capita convergence yeah. GDP. Yeah. Um, no, because I was looking at, at Greece, and I think perhaps that might be uh, moving to, to, what is it, orange uh, or pink? Sorry, I'm a bit colorblind, so I'm sorry for that. Um, by now, okay, that's detail. Um, what, you, what you see here is that those areas that have been struggling for many, many years are still are still struggling. So there is, there is also within member states, and Italy is a case in point, within member states there is a huge problem of no redistribution. Um, and this turns into a European uh, problem uh, as well. Um, another lesson from this is um, in the member states that joined in 2004, which is just one year after you started measuring this, mm -hmm. um, the joining of the EU and I would say the, the structural funds have had um, an overperformance even of the already high expectations Absolutely. of growth in That's these true. economies. So, so the fact that this level of redistribution, because structural funds are also redistribution, effective, effectively is very, very successful. Um, so then you have to ask yourselves why, with all the common agricultural policy, with all the structural funds, this is not working for the Mezzogiorno in Italy, this is not working for rural France. 
um, and to some extent for parts of the United Kingdom. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest and toughest nuts to crack in the years to come. What you see, for instance, look at Paris, strong overperformance. Absolutely. What you see in the fourth industrial revolution is sort of a, a um, race to the great urban areas in Europe. Um, now, I'm, even, I'm, I'm just not talking about Central and Eastern Europe now. I'm talking about sort of uh, EU pre-2004. Uh, a race to the big urban areas. You also see then an overburdening of these urban areas in terms of, of, of housing, of, of other facilities, transportation, etc., etc. And you see that this is happening at the expense of other areas because the talents of the other areas are all going to uh, these great urban areas. So I would um, uh, maintain that for the future of European cohesion policy, we need to establish relationships of redistribution also between these huge urban areas where all the innovation takes place, where the new economy is being very successful, and areas close, relatively close to them, that are suffering because of this. And you see, also look at the, the map of the United Kingdom. In those red areas, it's not just rural areas, it's also old industrial areas. And you, usually we, in Europe, we used to talk about the distinction between cities and rural areas. Now the distinction is different. It's between these very modern urban areas and the cities and towns that are still um, stuck, more or less, in the old economy. Um, and where people are present who think, I have nowhere to go, but this economy is no longer going to provide for me and my children in the future. So if we don't create instruments of redistribution, and 5G is extremely important for this. Um, uh, the circular economy is extremely important for this. Above all, education is extremely important to give people the tools and long, lifelong learning to be able to perform in this new economy. Because one of the advantages of the new economy is that it's, it should be less uh, linked to a specific spot. Uh, but we are still linking it very much to these big cities. And, and this is something we need to rethink. And I would reorient uh, in the next MFF structural policy towards this goal. You're, you're effectively talking about a system of uh, internal fiscal transfers in these countries yes. to make it work. And if we look, if we take the UK out of this picture, most of those red are the Eurozone countries. And if you apply the principle of fiscal transfers, it also will have to happen at the Eurozone level. Yeah. And your own country, you said, yeah, I cannot escape my national origins, but the Netherlands is relatively doing okay. But they are also among those lighter green areas and the, and the Germans and the, and, and the Northern European richer states there are the most resistant to that level of the idea of fiscal transfers. So as a commission president, you will have to preside over a better functioning monetary union, which we all agree needs to happen. And how do you win the hearts and minds of the Greens to tell them that they have to do more uh, to help the ones in red and to not breed a resentment? The Greens in this, no, no, so Greens in the, as in the rich, the, green slightly, the overperforming Greens telling that they have to help out the underperforming reds. Well, you know, the one thing, the one thing that is weakening Europe in the last 10 to 15 years in all these crises is what I would call moral hazard. So within societies, we're talking about the middle classes first, within societies, Already, people have the feeling, I'm asked to do a lot of things, but who's, who's taking care of me? Um, and at the European, so this happens within our member states, and you can see that in voting patterns in member states. But at the European level, it's even stronger. Why should I share something with somebody who doesn't care about the rules? Um, so I should always pay, and they don't do it. So, or, or why should I 
Why should we live under the diktat of an economic model that's good for Germany, but it's killing us? Um, why should we uh, have solidarity and give structural funds to a country that doesn't want to share our misery when we are swamped with uh, refugees and migrants? So all these, all these issues are issues of moral hazard. Uh, so the fact, I think all Europeans now understand we're in this boat together. And for people who have trusted other people and are slightly optimistic, that's okay because then we can come to agreements with everyone and we'll move forward. But for people who don't really trust the other Europeans or are pessimistic, being in a boat with people you don't trust is not exactly something that gives you a nice feeling. So I think that is the real, real problem in Europe. And as long as we cannot start solving the issue of solidarity at the national level, we will not be able to solve the issue of solidarity at the European level. Having said that, I think there is a case to be made that, for instance, Eurobonds, which is something, you know, you mentioned Eurobonds in the Netherlands and you get all, people all worked up. Eurobonds, if you can explain that the cost to your economy and your currency will be much, much bigger if you allow the financial markets to single out the weakest animal in the herd and then all go after that animal, which is what almost happened with Greece. If you can, if you can reduce the risk of that, then the cost to your economy will be much less. Now, I see the way people are looking that it's already a difficult argument to make in this audience. And it's going to be an even more difficult argument to, be, to make in a wider audience. But because something is difficult doesn't make it untrue. And I think we need to face the fact that as Europeans, if we are in this together, we should also share the risk together because that's at the, at the advantage of every single one in there. If we do not complete the economic and monetary union with more elements of solidarity, then it's only a matter of time that when one member state is in trouble, it will be isolated from the herd by the financial markets, and then we will have a much bigger problem in the Eurozone than if we have more solidarity so that nobody can be isolated and picked upon individually. You give a very clear answer to Merin's question about the, the fiscal transfers uh, within the uh, euro area between those regions that have been more successful and those that have been less successful and, you know, issues of abiding to, to rules. Uh, when we look, if we go back to the EU as a whole and go back to, to, to the chart, uh, what we, we saw was that, you know, most of the green spots, uh, there are in Central and Eastern Europe. And, and as you indicated, the, uh, the membership uh, of countries that join uh, in or after 2004 has been very successful through the working of the, uh, of the single market and through the working of the, uh, of the structural funds. Now, uh, one of the issues that will be uh, on the agenda clearly for the next commission, since presumably this commission will not be able anymore to, uh, to close the deal, would be the MFF, the next, uh, the next budget. So, um, what about the, the matter of linking some of the structural funds to, uh, to, the, rule, uh, to the rule of law? Um, this is something that you have been involved, obviously, very closely in your current portfolio at the, uh, at the Commission. Uh, when um, 
the candidate from the EPP, Mr. Weber, was here a couple of days ago. And there was discussion, as there is typically in those uh, uh, occasions, discussion about uh, the EPP and, uh, and Mr. Orban. Uh, I need to ask you also, uh, what is uh, your view about uh, some of the countries there that are more belonging to your camp, including uh, Romania. Uh, how do you feel, not just about Romania, but in general about the issue of linking the uh, structural funds to uh, rules of law, to criteria of rules of law? How do you feel about that? And how should we, uh, or should the, the, the Timmermans Commission implement that? Well, it's a matter of experience that, um, and this is not just the Commission talking, it's Transparency International, it's the OECD, uh, it's a matter of experience that if there is a weakening of the rule of law, there's immediately an increase of corruption. Um, these things are intimately linked. Uh, because if there are no controls, no checks and balances, you know, human beings are human beings, they become greedy, and then, you know. And I, I, I fear we see some of that in, in the member states you were seeing. So that you link um, the rule of law to the way other Europeans' taxpayers' money is being used, I think, is, is just a matter of common decency. So I think we should do that, and I know there's a strong support for this. I would prefer, uh, um, or on top of that, rather, it would be good if the European Public Prosecutor's Office would be accepted in all the member states who have the possibility to adopt the EPPO, uh, would be allowed to look after this and to prosecute directly if there are problems, uh, because that's one of the one of the uh, weak points. If we do investigations in the Commission or Olaf does investigations, at the end of the day, even if there's very strong evidence, the only thing we can do is give it to the national prosecutor. And sadly, uh, too often, uh, it, it's then just put in a shelf and, uh, and not treated. Um, so if you can have the European Public Prosecutor's Office do this on its own, um, then I think this would also help uh, prevent uh, abuse of, of uh, EU taxpayers' money. Uh, and so I hope that at some point also Poland and Hungary uh, will accept the authority of the EPPO, which they don't uh, today. Now, uh, coming to, uh, because this was also for you a long way to, to, to come to Mr. Weber's point about uh, Romania, um, um, I have been in my, in my role as first vice president of the commission on the rule of law, politically completely colorblind. So I have no problem with being just as strict uh, with any country or any party, regardless of whether it belongs to my family or not. Um, at the same time, it is very clear that for my political family, and I'm stepping out of my role from the commission, but my political family, it is unacceptable. And we said so very clearly uh, also in our Congress in Madrid, uh, and also to the leader of the uh, PSD in, in, in Romania, very clearly, uh, we will not compromise on the rule of law. Um, so it's your decision, you're either in or out, but on the basis of the rule of, the rule of law. We have, um, as you know, I've made a declaration uh, uh, last uh, week as to the situation in Romania, and I think that uh, was very clear. Um, and. Um, Given the fact that this still has not been resolved and we're still looking for a solution, uh, yesterday the Party of European Socialists uh, decided to freeze the relationship with the uh, PSD and they will not be part of our political campaign. They are not invited and we will not go, go there. And um, on the basis of uh, the developments in the coming weeks and months, we might even take other decisions, but formal decisions, of course, have to be taken uh, by the formal structures in the party to do that. But yesterday already our leaders, our leaders decided to say, based on 
the situation today in Romania, we freeze the relationship with uh, that party. There's a microphone issue. No, oh, it's back. So. Uh, moral hazard and, and, and why some countries perceive there to be moral hazard. And your own country will say that there's a huge role for the Commission to play in their idea of why moral hazard has been, uh, you know, sort of runs amok. And one of them is because there's a political application of the rules in the Eurozone. Has it been a mistake for the Juncker Commission to call itself political and then have a political interpretation of fiscal rules because it only seems to have been fostering that mistrust? And would you continue the legacy of saying that you're a political commission? Well, first of all, name me one commission that wasn't political. Um, was it the Law Commission not a political uh, commission? But apart from that, yes, we are a political commission. Political means that we have... Um, uh, a, uh, discretion in how we apply the rules. We don't have discretion in whether we apply the rules or not. Uh, and the interesting thing is that every single member state, including the member state I know best, sometimes comes to the Commission and begs for discretion in applying the rules because it is in their interest. And then they come to the Commission and say the Commission should not have applied that discretion to other member states because it's not in their interest. Come on. Uh, you know, um, uh, just take the example of, of, of Portugal when, when uh, Costa became uh, Prime Minister. He came to the Commission and he said, okay, I have a couple of problems. I will need to take these and these steps to get everybody on board. This is not what we agree had agreed previously and I'm not going to continue with the salary cuts on, on people in, in uh, official uh, functions. And the Commission was saying, oh, we should do that. We're a bit worried. Um, but he said, I will make sure this is uh, fiscally solid and that I will stick with, stay within the rules and, and, and the recovery will, um, will um, make sure that we are on track. And we had a long discussion and we looked at it very carefully. The president and Dombrovsky and Moscovici and I also had a look and, and we came to the conclusion this could work and we said this could work. Huge! huge noise from Mr. Weber and all his friends. Oh, my God, this should not happen, and you should punish them, etc., etc. Look at the economic performance of Portugal now. Was the Commission wrong in that? I don't think so. The Commission was absolutely right. And the same you could apply uh, to, to, to Spain. Uh, Mr. 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 Weber and his friends wanted to, to, to kick out Greece out of the Eurozone. Do you imagine what huge damage we would have done to the Eurozone? And look now, things are moving ahead also because of very, they're not taking any credit. Jean-Claude Juncker took a very, very wise position on Greece over a very, very long number of years. And I, I believe that is the Commission using the political room of maneuver that the rules give us. You know, the original sin in the eyes of the Dutch, the original sin is France and Germany not uh, applying the rules of the Growth and Stability Pact at the time. Schroeder asked for that. He said, I can't apply the rules, but I will use that to reform. Chirac said, I can't apply the rules, and I would use that to reform. So Schroeder reformed. Chirac obviously didn't. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, Merkel has won three elections thanks to Schroeder's reforms. Um, and France is in, in, so the left reformed and the right didn't reform uh, and France is still in the doldrums and Germany came out of this because of uh, social democrats taking responsibility for reform. Okay, we're in a new phase now, we have to look at that again, I mean Germany is in a different phase, but this created a huge 
um, backlash in the Netherlands because they said Portugal sinned before and Portugal was immediately punished very hard. Now it's France and Germany and they can get away with it. But politically speaking, what the German government did at the time was, with hindsight, a step back to jump two steps forward. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it also my own government, when I was in government in the Netherlands, we also, strictly speaking, violated the rules. Of the, we asked for flexibility in the, uh, in the uh, Stability and Growth uh, Pact. And it worked wonders for the Dutch economy. Let's move to uh, the fourth part and uh, another set of rules, competition rules. Yes. And to the uh, Alstom uh, Siemens case. Um, I think there, there are two views uh, about the, the decision of the Commission. Uh, one view is that, well, the Commission took the only possible decision given the rules, but the rules are wrong. The rules are not the rules that they are old rules. They don't apply anymore to the 21st century. We are in a totally different world today. And the, the Commission was forced to, to apply the rules, but you know, what the next Commission should do is to seek a change of rules so that there would not be such a decision. Another way to, to look at this, uh, well, this was a political commission. Uh, and the political commission could have taken a different, uh, a different decision. So in both cases, the view is by the opponents of the, uh, of the decision was that the decision was wrong. Either it was wrong because the commission did not use the flexibility that it should have as a political commission, or the rules oblige the Commission to take this wrong decision. What is your view uh, on this? And what would uh, a Timmermans Commission do? Would it seek to change the rules? Is it very happy with this decision? Should we stick to the, to the current rules? I th choose the third way. You gave two ways. I choose the third way. This was absolutely the right decision. Rules or no rules, this was the right decision. Why? Because I believe creating a an effective monopoly on the European market would have led to most European travellers on trains paying more for their train ticket. And I don't think this was justified. So I think this was an absolutely correct application of the rules. Now, do we need another industrial policy? Yes, I think we do. Mm -hmm. But I think it's absolutely wrong to use the Siemens Alstom case as an example of the need for another industrial policy. There is no proof. I mean, the Commission looked, because of the, the, the huge pressure, the Commission was extremely thorough in looking at it in all sorts of different ways because there was this enormous uh, pressure. Um, the markets uh, are different than sometimes represented. Um, the Chinese are not active with high-speed trains on the European market. There are all sorts of reasons to say this would not be in the interest of member states and of our citizens uh, to do this. Um, um, and I'm not even talking about the risk of job losses in France uh, because of this. But anyway, apart from all these things, let's, um, let's not just only look at this specific case. We are late in developing uh, European industrial policy. I'll give you one very specific example. The Commission has been begging, even the previous Commission, but especially this Commission with Shevchovic, has been begging, begging the automotive industry to rethink its strategy on batteries. Uh, because we are moving to electrified mobility. That's inescapable. That's the way forward. And Europe is not capable of producing its own batteries. So we're at the mercy of the Chinese and the Koreans for batteries. That's in, uh, unacceptable. So we need a European champion 
to build a battery for cars, but also for storage of, of, um, of renewable uh, energy, etc., etc. We shouldn't be investing in that a lot. We need our energy markets to be stronger at the European uh, level. We should be investing in that a lot. Yeah, but what, what would the... So, okay, you said that the, the Commission has been begging the, uh, the, car, the car industry to move to the 21st, uh, to the 21st century. Uh, but apart from begging, uh, what would the, the Timmermans Commission do to actually move. Uh, you are saying that you know we are lagging, uh, we are lagging behind, yeah. and you are clearly saying, okay, competition, laxer competition yeah. policy rules is not the way to create European champions. We need some kind of an industrial. Yeah. What is this industrial policy apart uh, from begging? Ju just look, just look at the potential of the circular economy. I think we need champions in the circular economy in in Europe. I was talking about batteries before. I think we should be the continent in the world that is fastest in introducing 5G across the continent. For that, you also need uh, a big, uh, you need to unleash enormous quantities of investment, both public and private. The Commission should be organizing that uh, with uh, the member states. Uh, we need completely different logistic structures in Europe. This is also huge investments, not just 5G, it's also uh, uh, driverless driving, it's also, we need huge investment in rail. I mean, rail is one of those areas where we need huge investment. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a physical border almost between every member state because the rules are still different, the electricity is different, etc., etc. And we need to do this in a European scale. I don't think the answer is of creating a, a Russian rail, which I think the Hungarians are now thinking about, between Budapest and Moscow at the width of a Russian rail instead of European rail. I don't think that would be the way forward. So we need to, to invest on in the issue, On the well. specific we issue of to, batteries, yeah. how do we create? Do we need to create a European champion for batteries? And Look, what is the role of European the policy historic, this? My historic example is always Airbus. Had we not created Airbus at the time, we would all be at the mercy of Boeing now and paying twice as much for uh, passenger airplanes. Uh, Boeing and, and Embraer probably and some other smaller. Um, so the, 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 this, this choice to create Airbus has led to huge, huge advantages for the European economy, for R&D and for consumers. And we need to do that in, these, in this area as well. People are not going to buy a car because of the battery. It, they're going to buy a car because other things and how long the battery can perform, etc., etc. That's, that's something European car industry, because you need massive investment for this. You also need new raw materials, because the Chinese already have cornered almost all the markets in the world for the raw materials for the lithium batteries we have now. So you need a lot of R&D investment. The Commission can provide that into that. You need the automotive industry in Europe to come together, because you know this, the transformation the automotive industry is going through is like going from a horse and cart to a combustion engine. It's that profound. And if we don't get this right, there's so much, so much, so many jobs are attached to the automotive industry in Europe. If we don't get this right, it'd be a huge, huge blow to the European economy. And I would love to invest much, much more in this. And the Timmermans Commission will make a, a, a huge priority of that. Would the Timmermans Commission have to change what its commissioners' roles are? So, um, one of the questions we have from uh, anonymous is. What portfolio and competences and functions should be included in your new commission? And one, um, the suggestions here are for a commissioner for AI or a commissioner for the circular economy and a commissioner for, industri for new industrial policy. I think, I think the, the, the framework I would love to use 
because it's not just a European framework, it's a, it's a UN-established framework, is that of the Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and you could, with the, with the 28 or 27 members of the Commission, you could make a very good uh, division of labour on the basis of these Sustainable Development Goals. And, and they range from, um, you know, environmental issues, uh, uh, climate change issues, to social justice issues, to equality issues, to education issues, all the issues that are important for the transformation of the uh, uh, European economy. The next commission should be a commission that exemplifies the fact that we need to transform our economy and society to make it sustainable. I think this is the one issue we need to uh, look into, and it also gives us the opportunity uh, to talk about fair trade internationally, about international solidarity, about this incredible project which will be the future of Africa, which will be t largely in European, European and African hands uh, uh, together. Um, yeah, uh, I have so with much the, to say with about the Africa, but... With the Chinese as well. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure we do it on the same premise because I'm not so sure the Africans are going to be permanently happy with the way the Chinese are doing this. And we, perhaps we should be able to offer them a better deal, which is more on the basis of equality, more on the basis of, I would love to have an Erasmus for Africans, for instance. Uh, you, know, you know, in my view, um, nobody thought just after the Second World War that a reconciliation between France and Germany was possible. It happened. Nobody thought, I mean, I was a student in 1985, uh, when, or 84 or 85, when I was studying in France, when a, a French soldier stood up and said, uh, uh, our biggest challenge is the reunification of Germany, and then it will be neutral, and then NATO will be dead, etc., etc. And all the Germans in the room jumped up and said, are you absolutely crazy? There is no such thing as German reunifications. We will always have two Germanys. I mean, this is four years before the wall uh, came down. So never presume anything uh, and expect the unexpected. Um, but then we worked on creating One Europe uh, across uh, the former Iron Curtain. And look at the green <laughs> on the slide. That's a huge success. Now, the challenge of creating success, sustainable success in Africa is of the same magnitude. And it looks impossible today and it will be possible tomorrow, but it's the same magnitude. And we need to understand as Europeans, this is just as existential existential for our future as the end of the European uh, divide, if we don't take that responsibility. The irony of it is we are so worried about our demographic decline and we're scared witless about the demographic growth in Africa. There's some inconsistency there, isn't there? Um, we're coming to the end and I'm going to try and say, so you've made a sort of broad pitch where you've pitched yourself as a kind of somebody who wants sustainable, sometimes green oriented policies. We would like um, a different approach to, to industrial policy, but not necessarily a rewriting of the competition rule book. Mr. Weber has come up a few times in conversation. He was sitting here a few days ago and he's very clear that he wants competition to become a political tool that be, can be wielded by the commission. He also mentioned your uh, family's approach to the rule of law and maybe not being as strong as, as, as he would like. Mr. Weber is going to be somebody, and his party is going to be somebody that once the elections are over, you will have to think about how to work up a majority. Is he someone on which who you see eye to eye with? And is, he, is the EPP going to be indispensable if you want to make a bid to become the commission president? I think it would be very healthy for European democracy if no, no single party would be indispensable. So that's why I will seek, try and seek 
a progressive majority in the European Parliament. Um, I'm not sure I can make it, but I will certainly try. Um, um, and especially I'm worried about, you know, the whole young generation in the EPP. You know, if you look, like somebody, if you look at somebody like uh, Juncker, he said five years ago, never ever deals with extreme right. Now look at the EPP today. Kurz in a government with the extreme right. Tajani begging with all sorts of idiotic expressions to be uh, um, Salvini's best friend in, in Italy. Um, is this the way the EPP is moving? Then I'm very sorry. It's going to be very difficult to establish uh, links. You know, if you, if, you, if you believe you can defeat the extreme right by becoming like them, you've got another thing coming. And this is something I will never, ever um, um, uh, work with. I will not ever uh, look for an alliance with the extreme right because that's not because we have a difference in policies, because we have a different vis vision of humanity and human beings. And, you know, you have to draw the line somewhere. And if, if, if parties that distinguish people on the basis of their identity, I draw the line there. That's no way for me. Absolutely not. And, uh, you know, also on competition policy. This is the traditional German vision of things. The Commission should be doing this. We'll put this in another authority, which is another way of saying we Germans will control how this will work. There's more countries in the European Union than Germany. Perhaps Mr. Weber should think about that sometimes. Are you ruling out a coalition with the EPP? I'm not ruling out anything because at the end of the day, you will have to find a majority in the European Parliament. That might be a majority with us or without us. Uh, but my first um, uh, 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 priority is to try for the first time, for the first time, to find a progressive majority in the European Parliament. And for the first time, it could actually be possible. And will Mr. Macron be your first port of call when you're looking for allies? Well, I think Mr. Macron um, is not very clear on where he stands himself. Um, uh, I think there are quite a number of people in the uh, liberal movement that are very progressive, and then a number of people <laughs> in the liberal movement that are very, um, very conservative. Um, I think they, uh, how many Spitzenkandidaten do they have? Seven? Yeah. So they go for uh, um, quantity. Um, uh, um, and, um, you know, let, let's wait and see how many, how much um, uh, agreement we can find on a progressive, sustainable. You know, if we, if we do not get a majority in the European Parliament that understands that today's society is unfair and perceived as unfair by the middle classes and that we need to correct that with fiscal means, with social means, with new jobs, with new education, with different housing. If, if, if the line is you either destroy Europe or you keep Europe as it is, I can't work with that. We need to reform Europe. And movements that are willing to reform Europe to make it better, not to destroy it, are movements I'm willing to work with. One last question from me. In, in, in this view, where, I mean, the Liberals are very broad umbrella. Um, your government is also in Aldi. They are led by the VVD. Are they the types of Liberals that you want to work with? Well, there's also D66 in the government and in Alde, and uh, traditionally these two parties have been going at each other for a long, long time. They're now in, 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 in a government. Um, uh, you know, the VVD will have to make up its mind where it is, also in relationship to, to the extreme right. Uh, you, know, you know very well what the discussion is in, in the Netherlands uh, today. Uh, again, pro-Europeans who understand we need to create more fiscal fairness, who understand we need to create stronger social protection, understand we need to 
take care of some of the discrepancies in our society, understand we need to move to a sustainable society, I'll work with them. Is the Vevi Day part of them? Let's wait and see. Sometimes in the Netherlands, they, they came up with a plan for sustainability that sort of let the industry off the hook initially. Huge row in, in, in the country. They corrected that by introducing the idea of a CO2 tax, which I think is a good idea as long as it's done on the European level. So, you know, sometimes you're pleasantly surprised. Uh, I think we're going to throw it open and um, we'll try and take batches. So we'll go for three questions at a time. Um, we have a lady over here and then the gentleman and then maybe the front row. Hello, my name is Eleni Canelli and I represent Accountancy Europe. In the beginning of your intervention, you referred to SMEs and their access to finance. However, OECD in one of its recent reports mentioned that uh, the most important concern now for young entrepreneurs is skills and not access to finance. Is this a concern for you as well? And if you become uh, the next uh, Commission president, president uh, are you planning to take any actions on this? Thank you. Good afternoon, Jorge Valero with Euractive. Uh, a question, I would like to come back to Brexit and minorities in the parliament, uh, because uh, maybe the votes of the Labour Party could be this number of seats, 30 plus, that will allow you to uh, forge this progressive uh, majority, but four months after, they might leave uh, the union and you won't have the majority anymore in the chamber. So will you consider your presidency legitimate to continue the mandate? Or what will be the situation? Let's take one, one, more, one more question. Thank you. Carsten Ness with uh, Santander Bank. Um, at the beginning of the session, you mentioned under Fourth Industrial Revolution that there are new actors in a new economy and public authorities uh, should be dealing with this. So if it comes to digital companies, platforms, which are mostly non-Europeans, would you specify that a bit, like competition law or sector-specific regulation? And linked to that, as with the new commission, would you change the setup of the European Commission as actually everybody is digital now, whether you're a manufacturing company, a bank, everybody has to deal with digital industry. And very often you have to talk to five different DGs if you want to raise a topic with the commission. Why don't you take this uh, batch of I, questions? I think the, um, the issue of skills is not just an issue for SMEs anymore. It's a, a very, very wide issue for the European economy. And also, you know, I was, I was talking to Swedish trade unions not so long ago, and they, they've taken a different approach when they talk to, the, to their uh, members. When a member comes to them and says, um, I'm afraid I might lose my job, will you protect uh, me in my job? Traditionally, trade unions say, yes, we'll do everything to protect you in your job. Swedish trade unions make an analysis and say, very honestly, yes, your job will be gone in five or six years' time, but from day one, we will now start to give you the skills so you can take another job. I think that's the future. And I think we will have, at all levels, to massively invest in that. Uh, and I'm not saying this because we have a com competence in that field as commission, but I do see this as one of the biggest stumbling blocks, both for economic, uh, for, uh, for economic performance of Europe and more so for social, um, for, for social um, uh, coherence in the European Union. Because you have, to, you have to give people a way out that is optimistic and not just say, we'll keep you in your job as long as we can and then sorry, that's the end. But give them a perspective that they are able 
to reskill, to learn new skills, etc. The fact that the whole of European society will have to get used to the fact that school is no longer something you leave at 18 or 20 or 22 and never go back to. School and skill teaching will have to go on throughout your career. It's, that's the new reality. And we have to make it easier through social systems, uh, through incentives, etc., uh, uh, to do that. I, I, I spoke to the, um, to the um, how do you call this in English, the, the, the representative of the workers at, at BMW in Munich a couple of weeks ago, Betriebsrat uh, in German, I don't know how you say this. Uh, uh, Enterprise Council. And, and the Enterprise Council. And their whole idea of future of work is giving workers much more discretion in how many hours they want to work, when they want to work, where they want to work, and also how much time they want to take off to learn new skills with the help of the company. I think this is the future. And this will also highly profit uh, SMEs if we do that on a structured scale in all our member states. Now moving to uh, the second question. Look, um, um, first of all, um, we now have 31st of October as, as a date. Um, let's wait uh, a couple of days. I think before, let me put it this way, before the European elections, I think we probably will have more clarity uh, about uh, how long uh, the United Kingdom uh, will uh, stay in the European uh, Union. So before the European election, we will know um, whether uh, the, 30, the, the 1st of November is the first day without uh, the UK or whether that's not the case. So already before the European elections, all the political parties uh, will know what the value will be of uh, the British members of the European Parliament and will take it uh, uh, from there. Um, that's all I can uh, say to you today. But my attitude in principle, as with the Commission, as with other institutions, you're a member state, then you're in until you're out. And you have the full rights until you're out. But of course, the political reality is if we know uh, by the election date that they're going to be out by the 1st of November, their position in terms of deciding about the future uh, of uh, the European Union will of course be, be different. But as a point of very important principle, also because that's the treaty. Huh? When you're in, you're in, and you're fully in. Um, okay, then um, digital companies. Um, by the way, you're, you're, you represent a bank. We, we didn't even talk about completing the banking union. Uh, we didn't talk about sustainable finance. Sustainable finance is one of the big growth areas I think uh, we can create. And unfortunately, you represent a, a bank that has embraced that idea, which is, I hope, uh, something more banks uh, will do. Um, and I also believe we need to complete, because one of the biggest traumas I have as a politician is that we were sort of arm-twisted into giving billions of billions of taxpayers' money uh, to banks. And this should never ever happen. And the, the ripple effect, we were talking about the ripple effect of the migration crisis. The ripple effect in our society of that is still huge. So the, the, the anger against the institutions of many people is also linked to the fact that we gave billions and billions of uh, uh, euros to banks of which the perception is uh, and the reality is that they misbehave terribly uh, to get there. And we had to bail them out. Banks are doing extremely well again. Citizens, not so much. Look at the recent uh, OECD report. Middle classes aren't doing that well. Prices are higher. 
but their incomes haven't increased over the last year. So, so we have a huge problem, and then the banking union is an answer to that. If banks get into trouble in the future, it's on them and no longer on the taxpayer. I think this is of, of extreme, of extreme uh, importance uh, for the future of the European Union. But moving to, to digital, you know, um, my kids, especially the two youngest ones, 14 and 12, they don't even know the word digital because it's everywhere. So in the way we organize our work, we shouldn't be distinguishing digital. Every, every part of the Commission's work should, in principle, be, be digital. And then, of course, you should have uh, a vice president coordinating that, and he should, or she should be the one directly addressed uh, on, on, these, uh, on these issues. Um, uh, but if we want to, want to reap uh, the potential of the European economy, we need to move faster in this area. And there we have an opportunity because of the structure of the European, European society and the infrastructure we have. But if we, you know, if we stay focused on issues such as Brexit instead of moving ahead on these issues, we will never catch up with the Chinese or the Americans. Can I ask you a question on uh, what you just said about the Commission vice presidents? Uh, do you think the system uh, is working well? Is it something that you want to repeat in a Timmermans commission? Uh, one hears different views. Uh, the principle is good, but the, the working of it has not been uh, that great. Uh, you think that you know, there are reforms, so you want to abolish the vice president's system, or you know, the many presidents? You think yeah. you know, the coordination? I mean, it has, it's a very old story, yeah, the problem of coordination. Especially, well, okay, you have 28 commissioners, so uh, it's, it's not yeah. so easy. So yeah. what is your view about the organization of the well, commission? Well, the fact of the matter is that there, there are no jobs for 28 commissioners only doing uh, specific issues. So you have a choice. You either have less commissioners, after the Irish referendum, let's just forget about that, that's flogging a dead horse. Uh, so you have to work with the fact that you have 28 commissioners, so then the alternative is to organise the work of the commission differently. Jean-Claude did that, and I think he did it very well. Um, but um, I think the political reality has changed. Uh, first of all, uh, first of all, uh, the uh, time has come now to an end that there's two parties who, by definition, have a majority in the European Parliament. That makes a huge uh, change. The political landscape across Europe has become much more diverse, also in the member states, that's the second change. And the third change is no single party should be allowed this feeling that the Commission is there chascardé, and that sadly is still the case with the EPP and the Commission today. That's not a healthy situation. That's logical after 15 years. Um, uh, and so if a party believes that the Commission is their property, they will always, there will always be tendencies of hyper-centralization in the Commission, regardless of the vice president system. I would love to change that. I would love to change that. I want those parties in the European Parliament who are pro-European to see that their ideas are clearly reflected in the policies of the Commission, in the way the Commission works, and the way the Commission communicates. Uh, with them. So I think, but that's also, you know, uh, and I'm speaking to somebody who, who's Belgian who understands that perfectly well. You know, we come from countries with a long tradition of having to find uh, uh, compromises with many different parties. Uh, and I think this is the new European reality, uh, regardless of the UK. This is a new European reality, and I think this should be more reflected also in the way the Commission works and operates, uh, and I have good experience with that. Uh, also in, in the national government, it creates, uh, even if, if you're not in the commission, 
uh, or you don't have commissioners with your political background, more transparency and more active involvement creates more trust and more possibility to find uh, a broader... So you're coalition. definitely on the line of a political commission. In a sense, you would like to have a president and vice presidents that represent the different families? Yes, I, I want the political families to be clearly represented and to feel comfortable with that, uh, and not political parties to claim uh, the commission as a whole or parts of the commission. And I want, I want this because this is not just about the relationship with the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. It's also about the relationship with uh, the member states, where the political diversity sometimes is even bigger than in the European Parliament. And I, I, I think a political commission is a commission that understands what political role the treaty intended the commission to have. Uh, and that is also respecting the political role of the Council and the political role of the European Parliament. I think we have, um, we're going to take one last batch. Um, okay. We have a gentleman here, uh, a gentleman there, and the lady in the orange. My name is Honor Simons, and my question is the following. Uh, you spoke already about transatlantic relations. Now, how do you see the development of European defense policy in the Trump era and after Brexit? Claude Kahn from the United Nations Human Rights Office. Um, please excuse me for flogging the Brexit Horse, but do you, I, I, um, because a number of the questions have been political, I'm wondering if you see any legal certainty threats from having UK MEPs taking part in things like the MFF discussion and then potentially leaving, um, or, or to other aspects of constitutionality, whether um, a parliament is uh, constituted, takes part in lawmaking, and then part of that departs. Is that something that, I, I mean, I'm sure it's been in commission thinking, but is that something that you believe can, can be threatening to, the, to the, the, the legal order? Um, hi, Rebecca Humphreys from WWF. So my question is about what the EU can do to tackle um, the issue of biodiversity loss um, on the global stage. So the biodiversity crisis is much less talked about than the climate crisis, but they're very much linked. Um, so would you say that we also need a, a Paris moment for biodiversity? Back to you. On, on European defence policy, um, you will not hear me talk loosely about the European army. Nor will you hear me talk loosely about a European aircraft carrier. Um, um, I believe that the wins we can make realistically are in European defence industrial policy. We are wasting hundreds of millions, if not billions, of taxpayers' money by being completely uneconomical and uneconomic uh, about our defence industry. Uh, we're also, because you need massive investment given the nature of the defense industry as it is developing, it's no longer about tons of, no longer about tons of steel. 
So I believe we need to invest in that first and foremost. And that's also where the Commission comes in, because that's where we have uh, some competences uh, to show for ourselves. Um, let's start step by step. If we can get uh, bigger defence uh, um, uh, results uh, with the same investment and with a bit more investment, because all member states who are also member states of NATO are committed to the 2% uh, GDP uh, goal, uh, then I believe we can create uh, a stronger European defence and that will also create the possibility to work more closely together. But the, the idea that national parliaments would relinquish the ultimate decision on sending soldiers into, uh, into harm's way is just too far-fetched today. So we need to, to, to accept that reality for times to come. But we need to create more specialization in Europe, which will bite if you specialize. You know, I, I look at, the, uh, for instance, the Dutch and, and the Belgians. They have one navy now and there's no operational problems. They can jointly uh, do the operations. And, and we are integrating our air forces more. We are integrating our uh, army more with the Germans. And it's working quite well. I think these are the steps we need to take. We need a bit of, I mean, of course, everybody's saying we now need more defense, more defense. But let's be realistic about what we can achieve and work on that step by step. That would be, that would be my, um, my pitch for that. And, and incidentally, that's probably also the best contribution uh, we can uh, make to safeguard NATO until there's another president in the United States um, to show that Europe is willing to take a greater responsibility. But because, pff, no illusions, any American president would have made that point. Uh, perhaps not as crudely as this American president, but every American president would have said it is unfair that Europe takes such a little share in its own security. And I think the American presidents have a point. Um, so we will have to, to, to take a bigger responsibility for that. And I would go at it through uh, industrial policy from the position of the Commission I'm talking now, uh, instead of, of talking about the European army all the time. Uh, it might come uh, to that at some point, but that's certainly not going to be the start of the whole uh, thing. Legal certainty, you know, the biggest legal uncertainty would have been for a member state not to participate in the European elections. Then you would really have a breach of the treaty and that would be a serious problem because that anybody who would be in disagreement with the decision of the European Parliament would challenge that in court and would probably also be vindicated in court. So that is the biggest legal uncertainty that needs to be removed. That apparently has now been uh, removed and all the other legal uncertainties which are a fair point you are making uh, our legal experts will have to look at that, but they are of minor importance compared to uh, the legal uncertainty we would have created if, if they would be still in the EU uh, after the 23rd, uh, over the 26th of, of, of May, uh, still in the EU, but not in the European Parliament. Then the European Parliament would have a legitimacy uh, problem. So uh, it's not a perfect answer to your question, but that's, that's how we see it at, at this stage. On the biodiversity loss, the platform on sustainable development I created, uh, which was very successful in also helping us uh, write the document about sustainable development, the reflection paper, has put this uh, very much high on our agenda, and WWF has been has been instrumental uh, in that. You know, the, the loss of biodiversity is is a, a direct existential threat, in in the most basic uh, uh, meaning of the word. Uh, and if we don't put that higher on our agenda, we will, we will all uh, suffer uh, greatly. So in any sustainable uh, policy, uh, tackling the issue of biodiversity will be of extreme importance, especially also because this affects directly the common agricultural policy and the future of a sustainable common agricultural policy.
Thank you very much. So uh, I think we are coming to the end of this session. We want to give you an opportunity for a minute or two, if you want to make a, a closing uh, a closing yeah. statement. Well, well, the only the only thing I'm 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 not sure I'm, I'm talking to the right audience uh, here in our cozy little bubble. But um, the one the one thing that worries me most um, in Europe today is um, is indifference. Um, because those who want to destroy Europe are absolutely not indifferent. They're very committed, very focused. They're, they're better organized than ever before, getting even more organized. They're better financed than ever before. And it's not just Putin, Putin financing them, it's more people. Um, they don't represent the views uh, of the vast majority of Europeans. But if the majority of Europeans remain indifferent, they might still prevail. And that is, I think, you know, apart from party political talk, this is what uh, I say at every meeting I have. Do me a favour, never become indifferent. Whatever you choose, choose. Don't stay on the sidelines and be indifferent. Thank you. Thank you.